Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We are picking up this morning uh, where we left off back in May. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. I'll be reading through this 12th verse of chapter 6. Remember, we started a series through the book of Hebrews back in January. Uh, we normally take off for the summer. This summer was a little bit different uh, because I wasn't here uh, being gone on sabbatical. But still, uh, it's normal for us to take the summer off and then to pick back up uh, right where we left off uh, in September. And so that's what we're doing here this morning, picking up in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse 11. Let us read it together. This is the very word of God. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let me say, I probably wouldn't have picked this text uh, for my first sermon back if it hadn't been the text that was next in line. And uh, I promise you, we won't get through all of it this morning. But we're going to begin working our way through this text, asking God that He would give us ears to hear what He is saying to us as His people here this morning. And so let us go to God now and pray uh, that He would indeed give us ears to hear His voice this morning. Father God, we come before you asking for grace. 
asking that you, by your Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words, that he would be at work here now in the reading and the preaching of that word. And that he would be opening our ears to hear it, opening our hearts to receive it, sanctifying us by it, and strengthening us to obey it. Father, may your word bring forth a harvest of the fruits of righteousness here this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake. Amen. Earlier this year, we heard reports about a well-known pastor who was walking away not only from his ministry, but from his faith. In an article that he wrote to explain his decision, he said, If I allow the Scriptures to define what it means to be a Christian, then I must admit that I am not a Christian. We rightly grieve when we hear such Stories. We, we rightly grieve when we hear about one who has walked away from their faith. For, for such leaving, it, it brings slander upon the name of God. It, it brings wounds to his church. And it puts the man who is walking away in eternal peril. It is indeed a sobering and, and serious thing. But I want us to understand that the author of Hebrews is showing us in these verses that there is another type of unbelief that is just as destructive and that is just as dangerous, though it is seldom recognized for what it is. Look with me again at verse 11. The very first words remind us that we are jumping into the middle of an ongoing conversation. The author says, about this we have much to say. That this clearly points back to what he has just been talking about in the previous paragraph. So scan up the page with me to verses 7 through 10. The author writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now obviously there is... A lot in those verses. And I actually preached a whole sermon on those verses back in May. So I don't want to repeat everything that I said there. But I, I want you to see the author's main point. I want you to see what it is that he says I have much to talk about. What the author of Hebrews wants his readers to see is Jesus. What he has much to talk about is is Jesus. He, he wants them to see that though Jesus was the Son of God, He learned obedience through what He suffered and thereby became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Now to say that Jesus learned obedience does, does not mean that He was previously disobedient. The, the author has made this clear earlier in the letter when he says that Jesus is like us in every way except without 
sin. There was never a time when Jesus was disobedient. He had to, they didn't have to learn obedience in that sense. But rather, Jesus learned obedience in the sense of learning its full cost, of, of learning its full weight, of, of walking the full course. Jesus learned obedience by walking the road of suffering that was set before him in obedience to his Father, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, walked in suffering in obedience to his Father, even to the point of death. And by learning obedience in that sense, notice what the author says. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That is what the author wants the Hebrews to see. That is what it means for him to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that strange phrase, that, that strange reference to this obscure Old Testament passage, he's going to get to that. He's going to unpack that fully in the chapters that come. But the reason that he wants them to understand what it means for him to be a priest like Melchizedek is because it is as a priest like Melchizedek that he is the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. And the author wants the Hebrews to see that he is, he is desperate for them to see that and to, to comprehend that. Because he knows that they're beginning to drift. He knows that, that, that their faith is beginning to waver. This is why he has exhorted them so often throughout this letter up to this point. Turn back with me to chapter 2, verse 1. You heard the first verses of, of chapter 1 this morning in our call to worship that, that God has spoken definitively from the very beginning through His prophets. But now in these last days, He has spoken through His Son. And the author wants the Hebrews to, to hear Him when He speaks. That He wants them to, to heed His words. It's what He says in the first verse of chapter 2. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For He goes on to ask, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He is, he is begging with them. Pay attention to what you've heard. Do not drift. Do not neglect this Gospel. He says it again at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Him. Set your mind on Him. Meditate upon who He is, for He is the Apostle and the High Priest of your confession. He says it again in, in verses 12 and 13. He says, Take care, brothers, Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying, take care. Be careful. Be on your guard, lest you fall away. And again, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And he comes back to it again in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Be careful. Fear. Consider 
Be on your guard. Pay attention that you may not fall away, that you may not fail to enter His rest. Why? Verses 14 and 16 of chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. What is the author's concern? What is it about which he has much to say? He wants them to see Jesus. He wants them to, to consider Him. He wants them to, to, to remember who He is. In each of these exhortations, we see basically the same things. We, we see, first of all, the Hebrews, they have heard and believed the Gospel. They have, they have received it with joy. They have made the good confession. But we also see what the author sees. We see that they've become sluggish. We see that they are beginning to drift. We see that they are not holding fast, but rather are beginning to walk in unbelief and disobedience. This is exactly what the author is talking about here in, in chapter 5, verse 11. The author says, We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now there are some things that are Hard to explain because of the nature of the, the subject matter. I remember several years ago reading a book called The Elegant Universe. It was meant to be a simple explanation of quantum mechanics and string theory. And I began reading it, and I struggled through, but I was at least making some progress, understanding something of what was going on as I made it through the first half of the book. But as I got into the second half of the book, the author lost me. Even though he intended it to be a, a simple explanation, the, the subject matter was just too complex. It was hard to explain. That is not what the author is saying here. The author is not suggesting that the gospel is somehow like quantum mechanics. The author is not suggesting that the, the priesthood of Christ is, is somehow too complex for the Hebrews to understand. The problem is not the material. The problem is not his subject matter. The problem is the Hebrews. Look at what he says. It is hard to explain, not because it's exceedingly complex, but rather it is hard to explain because you have become dull or, or sluggish of hearing. So what does it mean to be sluggish of hearing? To understand that, I think we have to begin to understand how the, the ancient Hebrews used the language of hearing. Occasionally, they would use it the way we often use it. They, they would use it simply to describe an auditory experience. It could, it could mean simply having the, the sound waves bounce off your eardrums. This seems to be what we see in, in chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, If it... If the, if the voice of God bounces off your eardrums, if you, if you hear His voice, then you need to respond appropriately. But often it is that appropriate response that the Hebrews mean when they speak of really hearing. It's why Jesus can speak about those who have ears to hear hearing. It's why some people can hear without hearing. To hear something is to 
hear it in a way that you receive it and respond appropriately. If you hear a command, you obey it. If you hear a warning, you, you heed it. If you hear an encouragement, you are strengthened by it. If you, if you hear a promise, you rest in it. To hear is to, is to hear and to receive and to respond appropriately. And so it makes sense then that to be sluggish of hearing is to be sluggish in your appropriate response. To be sluggish in hearing is to be sluggish in, in responding with obedience or, or with encouragement or with comfort. And the author is concerned about the Hebrews because he knows that they have become sluggish in hearing. He knows that they have become sluggish in obedience. They have become sluggish in living out their faith. They confess Jesus as Lord. They're not like that pastor who walked away and said, no, I am no longer a Christian. They are still professing with their mouths. But they are not living out their daily lives as if Jesus was truly their Lord. Notice how he drives this point home in the, the next few verses. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You, you're acting like you need someone to teach you the, the basics. He isn't suggesting that they don't actually know the basics. He knows that they do. It's, it's likely that he's the one who taught them the basics. But rather he is saying, listen, you, you know, but you're living as if you, you don't. You're living as if you need someone to, to teach you the basics of the Christian faith. You appear to be like a little child who needs milk and not solid food. You are living as if you were entirely unskilled in the word of righteousness. Think about what that image suggests. It means they have no skills for living out the righteousness that is prescribed by the word of God. God's word is in many ways the blueprint for human flourishing. It is the blueprint for the life that he has called us to live. But it takes skill to live that life out. Simply having the instructions doesn't always do you any good if you, if you lack the skills. There have been many times when I've had the instructions and I've had all the materials and I have failed miserably to somehow embody the one or the other. That's to be unskilled. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you look like you are unskilled in the basics of the Christian life. You are, you are living as if you have no skills whatsoever for righteousness. And when I see that, when I, when I look at your life and see one who is unskilled in righteousness, I am sobered. I am concerned. Why? Because the author knows that Jesus is the Savior of all who obey Him. That's what he said in verse 9. That by learning obedience, by, by obeying even to the point of death, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for whom? For all those who Obey him. Now I suspect that that phrase is at least mildly troubling to many of you. After all, don't we believe in, in salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Don't we explicitly deny that, that salvation is by works? Didn't Sam say that in our assurance of pardon this morning from, from Romans chapter 3? Doesn't Paul also say it in his, in his letter to, to the Galatians when he writes that we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ 
For by works of the law, no one will be justified. Can't be more, more clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. How then can the author of Hebrews say that Jesus is the Savior of those who obey him? Is he, is he preaching a different gospel? Does he have a, a different take on, on who Jesus was? Is, is this the, the, the multitude of Christianities that, that modern scholars talk about? Not at all. The author is not proclaiming a different gospel than Paul. There is but one gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is simply showing us the other side of the same coin. Yes, salvation is by faith alone. That is explicit. It is undeniable. It is, it is clear throughout the scriptures. But it is equally clear that the, that the faith that receives salvation is never alone in the life of the believer but rather, faith is always accompanied by works. Faith obeys. This is exactly what we see in, in the letter of James. He writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is pretty clear if you're, if you're following along. If, if, you're, if you're reading through James, you, you know what he expects the answer to be. The, the implied answer is clearly no. Such faith cannot save. In fact, he, he, he calls such faith dead. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is a dead faith. But it's not just the author of Hebrews and, and James who makes this point. Paul himself. The same Paul who wrote Romans, the same Paul who wrote Galatians, in that very letter, in the letter to Galatians, says that, yes, no one will be justified by works of the law, but a person is justified by a faith that expresses itself in love, which Paul, in his letter to the Romans, calls the very essence of all true obedience. So we're justified by Faith, but the faith that justifies is a faith that expresses itself in obedient love. We don't earn our salvation. Jesus did that for us. We receive salvation by faith as a free gift of, of God's grace. But the faith that receives that gift it's a faith that manifests itself in our daily life. It is a faith that expresses itself in obedience. Not perfect obedience. Certainly not meritorious obedience. But true obedience. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will endeavor in humble reliance upon His grace to live as His subject, as, as His Servant, if you believe, you will endeavor to obey. And therefore, if your hearing <coughs> is sluggish, if your obedience is slow, if after a long time you remain unskilled in the works of righteousness, it's worrying. It's worrying to your pastor as the author of Hebrews is the pastor to these people. 
It is worrying to your friends and to your family, and it ought to be worrying to you because it calls into question the truth of your profession. When the author of Hebrews saw that these Hebrews had become sluggish, he was concerned. And when we see the same thing in our own lives or in the, the lives of our friends and family, we also ought to be concerned. We ought to be willing to put ourselves to this same test. As we read through these verses over the course of the next several Sundays, we need to be willing to ask ourselves, are we sluggish of hearing? Are we slow to obey? Do we live like infants in the kingdom of God, needing milk and not solid food? Do our lives reflect the truth of our confession? Is our life shaped by the reality of the gospel we profess to believe? These are vital questions. We, we may not have denied our faith. We may not have walked away from our confession. But we need to ask ourselves, are we living it out? Is our confession more than lip service? Do we relate to our, our spouse and our, and our children and our, and our parents in accord with God's word of righteousness? Are our relationships with our friends and, and neighbors shaped by the gospel? Do we spend our, our money and do we do our work in accord with the truth? Do we respond to sinful desires and, and temptations in harmony with our profession of faith of Jesus Christ as Lord? Do we live out our faith? Are we working out our salvation? Or are there large swaths of our life that simply do not reflect the truth of what we profess to believe? These are questions we must seek to answer honestly. And when we do, I suspect that some of us here this morning will have to admit that we're right there with the Hebrews who first received this letter. Some of us will have to admit that, that we are living like infants. That, that we are living like those with, with no knowledge of the Christian life and, and no skill in the words of, of righteousness. We, we, we profess the faith, but we aren't living it out. Others of you, probably those who are, won't admit it, but others of you are, are actually doing quite well. Not perfectly, of course, but by the, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you are genuinely zealous for good works. You are, you are genuinely endeavoring in, in humble reliance upon God's grace to, to walk as becomes a follower of Christ. I see it. And we ought not to deny the work of the Holy Spirit that is at work among us. But I suspect that most of us here this morning will find ourselves somewhere in the middle. We genuinely desire to live out our profession of faith, but from time to time, maybe more often than we care to admit, whether through the prompting of the Holy Spirit or, or the challenge of, of friends or of, of books that we're reading or the, the pricking of our conscience, 
we see that in some area of our lives we have become sluggish of hearing. In some area of our lives we have stopped living in accord with the gospel. I think of Peter in Antioch. Peter was an apostle. He, he, he wrote part of the New Testament. He, he was the one who, who preached so valiantly on the, the day of, of Pentecost. And then when he was arrested and beaten, went out to do it again. Peter, uh, the, the rock upon which the church is, is built. And yet, when he visited Antioch, and he encountered false teachers who were accusing him of compromising the gospel by eating with Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, he pulled away. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face and say, how you are living is not in keeping with the gospel. It is not in step with the truth that you profess to believe. Peter was a believer. And yet, in one area of his life, he had become sluggish of hearing. I think we've all been there. Too often, we've been there. But wherever you find yourself on the continuum this morning, whether you, you find yourself living almost completely out of accord with your profession, or whether you, you see some area of your life that is out of accord, even as you genuinely desire to, to live out your faith, wherever you find yourself on the continuum this morning, the author's charge to you is the same. His charge to you is this. He writes, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on... To maturity, not laying again the foundation. There it is. That's the charge. Wherever you find yourself this morning, this is what you are called to. Let us leave the elementary doctrines and let us go on to maturity. But what does that mean? What does, it, what does it mean to leave the elementary doctrines? We have, to be able, we have to understand what that means, but we also have to understand what that, that doesn't mean. The author is not suggesting that the Hebrews need to move on from the gospel and, and leave it behind. In the Christian life, we, we never outgrow the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. That's not what the author is calling the Hebrews to do, but rather notice what he says. He says he wants them to stop laying again and again and again the foundation. Think of a child, or more likely a, a teenager, who constantly wants to revisit and, and renegotiate the house rules. He constantly wants to talk about uh, screen time rules, and bedtime rules, and curfew rules, and, and family meal rules. If you've ever been in that situation, if you've ever been in a situation where, where one of your children is constantly wanting to, to revisit the elementary doctrines of your house, you probably know that that does not demonstrate a sincere and robust desire to obey. He, he is not going above and beyond to make sure he understands what you require so that he can obey all the more precisely. That's not what is going on, but rather, he wants to lay again and again and again and again the foundation. Why? Not so that he can obey, but so that he can obey he doesn't like the rules. He doesn't want to live according to them. He, he, he wants to, to re-explore the elementary principles yet again so that if he can discover a loophole or discover some way out. 
And that is exactly the attitude that the author is, is talking about here. It's exactly the attitude that he, he sees in the Hebrews. He is saying to them simply, look, the basic doctrines of Christ, they are clear enough. They have been clearly set forth. As a Christian, you must first repent of dead works. Non-negotiable. And you must turn to God in faith. You must be baptized into Christ and you must receive the Holy Spirit, which is the most likely significance of that reference to the laying on of hands. And then you must believe in the, the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment and you must look to Christ as your hope on that last day. A Christian may not question whether repentance is really necessary. A Christian may not question whether or not it is really necessary to be baptized into the name of Christ. A Christian may not question whether there's really going to be a, a final judgment and a, a resurrection. These are the elementary, the, the foundational doctrines. They're not up for debate. Therefore, to question them is not honest inquiry. But on the contrary, such questions are childish evasions. And they echo the words of Satan to our first parents. Did God really say? Satan wasn't honestly looking for information. He was looking to call into question the very word of God, which is our sure and firm <coughs> foundation. So the author is saying to the Hebrews, yes, God did really say. Now stop Questioning the elementary doctrine. Stop laying again and again and again the foundation and start building. Start working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Start living in accord with what you know to be true. <coughs> that is what he means by, by let us leave. Not let us leave behind as if we no longer need them, but let us leave them alone. Let us leave them be. Let us leave them as our foundation and start building upon the foundation that has been laid. Because it is in the building that we move on towards maturity, which is, which is clearly the goal. A mature life is a life of lived faith. A mature life is a, is a life of embodied faith, a life that reflects the truth of what you profess to believe. So this is what you are called to. You are called to leave behind the gospel, to, to leave it alone, to stop questioning the elementary doctrines, and to start living out what you know to be true. But how do we do this? How do we go on to maturity? How do we begin or, or continue growing up in our salvation? I think the author points us to an answer in verse 14. Notice what he says. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant <coughs> practice to distinguish good from evil. So there it is. How did the mature become mature? By constant practice. The mature become mature by training their powers of discernment by constant practice. I'm the kind of person who's, who's always looking for the secret. I'm reading articles about, about the tips and the tricks and the hacks that will make my life instantly better in whatever area of life that I'm trying to improve. 
Let me tell you what I've discovered in my search for life hacks. They don't exist. There are no such secrets. Whether it's in athletics or whether it's in productivity or whether it's in my health, there are no shortcuts. There, there are no tips that give you instant success. Progress is the fruit of persistent practice. If we are to go on to maturity in the Christian life, it is going to take constant practice. Today, you must resolve to live out your faith and to walk in accord with the gospel. And all that that entails, you, you must resolve that you will renounce your sinful passions, that you will say no to the desires of your flesh. You, you must resolve that you will give yourself for the sake of your spouse rather than trying to manipulate her or, or him into to giving themselves for you. You must commit to taking the time to instruct and to, to discipline your children even when you're tired. You must give to Him your anxiety and your fear in prayer. Even when clinging to your anxiety feels like the only thing that you can do. You must resolve to do your work as unto the Lord, even when the job you have is not the one you want. You must resolve to rejoice even in your sufferings, because you know that your Heavenly Father is at work for your ultimate good. And in myriad other ways, we must resolve to actually live out our faith. It is a, a resolution. It, it is something we must decide to do. It is something that we must endeavor after. And then we must do it again tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. So long as it is called today, we must resolve to live out our faith. For it is only by such constant practice that we will ever go on to maturity. Now I know for some of you, that sounds like an impossible burden. You're like, I've been there. I, I've done that. I, I've tried that. It didn't go well. I, I, I stumbled badly. I, I fell on my face. There's no way I'm doing that again. I'll just coast, thank you. I want to encourage you that we have all been there. We all know what it is to, to stumble badly. None of us has ever made it to the end of a day without falling flat on our face. But those failures are not reason to give up. But rather they are reason to get up and try again because they prove that you have not yet arrived. You are not yet where you are going. And God did not call you because he thought you were going to run the race Perfectly, He called you in all of your mess, in all of your weakness, in all of your brokenness, and He said, come with me, and He promised, and I will be with you. I will strengthen you. More than that, I will get you where you need to go. That promise is, is here. It's not so clear in, in the English, unfortunately. But the reality is, even in these verses, God is promising to get us where we need to go if we will practice, if we will resolve to, to, to live out our faith, then God will get us there. We see it in verse 1. Most English translations have something like, let us go on to maturity. But, but the verb that the author uses is actually in the passive voice. 
It might be better translated as, as let us be taken or, or let us be carried on to maturity. We aren't the actors. We're being acted upon. We are passive. Now, obviously, we have something to do. He's, he's made that clear. We are to practice. We are to engage in constant practice. But when the New Testament authors use a passive voice, they are talking about the agency of God. They're saying this is what God will do. If you will give yourself to constant practice, He will take you on to maturity. You will make progress. And therefore, if your self-examination reveals to you that you are far more childish than you should be after all this time, and it probably will, if it reveals to you that there are areas of your life that are grossly out of accord with your profession of faith, and it probably will, if it reveals to you that you need to keep working on the same things you've been working on for the last 10, 20, 30 years, and it probably will, then the author's encouragement to you is this, don't give up. But repent and begin again. Resolve today that you will begin living out your faith. Humbly assured that the God of all grace is there to give you help in your time of need. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you will give yourself to practice, He will not fail to carry you on to maturity. And because this assurance is ours, because it is ours in Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation, because this assurance is ours in Christ, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it and live it out together. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this word. We acknowledge that there are hard things in these verses and that, that we will have to wrestle with them. But let us first hear this basic encouragement, Father. That you desire to carry us on to maturity. And you promise to carry us on to maturity if we will simply give ourselves daily to the living out of our faith and humble reliance upon your grace. Father God, give us this resolve. And then grant us success in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.